Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello, and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, December 29th. I'm Teresa Watson. And in for Leslie Palmer, I'm Janet Marana, and we're so happy to have you with us tonight. In our top story tonight, I have a heartwarming story of premature twins who were able to go home for Christmas. Dr. William Lyle, also known as the Pro-Life Doctor, will join me to talk about how doctors are able to save more and more premature infants. Is Trump still in the lead in the latest polls from New Hampshire? Teresa will have this and more in political news in a nutshell. What's happened to all of the Democratic bills signed into law by Gretchen Whitmer? Janet will have that and a case three pro-lifers won about being targeted for wearing their pro-life shirts at the National Archives Museum in abortion in the news. And Frank Pavone has a message of hope and encouragement for pro-lifers as we enter 2024. Please stay tuned. Premature baby twins born at 24 weeks were discharged from the hospital in time to enjoy Christmas at home with their parents. Kai and Raven McKinney were due to be born at the end of October, but arrived at just 24 weeks gestation in July. Both weighed less than two pounds at birth, the same size as toy bunnies that their family used to measure their growth. The baby's parents, Andy and Justin, reported that they were given a 55% chance of the baby surviving. They had tried for six years to conceive, leaving them devastated at the prospect of losing their children. Both babies proved fighters over four months in the hospital. Kai was finally able to go home with his parents after 114 days in the neonatal intensive care unit, followed by his sister Raven 22 days later. Raven's recovery was particularly remarkable, growing at an initial from an initial one and a half pounds to eight pounds, six ounces when she was discharged from the hospital. We're excited, said the twins' mother, Andy. We never thought this day would come. She said, I've got two presents right there in reference to her babies as they returned home in the lead up to Christmas. <clears throat> Survival rates for premature babies are improving. I have with me here tonight Dr. William Lyle, OBGYN, known as the pro-life doctor. Dr. Lyle is a passionate pro-life advocate. He took over a practice that was the largest provider of abortion services in Pensacola, Florida, and immediately put an end to those services. He is part of a nationwide network of 500 physicians who voluntarily perform abortion pill reversals and serves as a medical advisor for the Florida Human Life Protection Amendment. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lyle. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here on a very busy day here at work. Yes. So, Dr. Lyle, the story of the premature twins is becoming more prevalent with uh, advances that are occurring in the medical field. What advances um, are you aware of that help these babies survive? Well, patient care has just advanced so much when it comes to caring for the preterm babies. We've even had babies survive with good dating at 22 weeks gestation, and which is absolutely unbelievable. A lot of it has to do with the respiratory care, giving the moms steroids so that we can mature the baby's lungs, which also will help prevent injury to the baby's brain and injuries to the baby's bowels. And we just have dedicated doctors and nurses. I mean, a good NICU might cost $50, $70 million, 
but it's amazing how we're treating the babies after they're born and patients have rights and these kids deserve access to the best care available. But we are also now in a new era where we are treating the babies in the womb, not just diagnosing them with issues on ultrasound, but we are treating and we're actually curing them on the inside. And we can go through some of those ways, but we're doing blood transfusions, open heart surgery, spina bifida corrective surgery, laser vascular surgery, and even recently up in Boston, they performed brain surgery on a baby in the womb that was then later delivered. A lot of centers used to call themselves maternal fetal medicine centers, where it's mom and baby. Well, a lot of them are dropping the maternal and they are just referring to themselves as a fetal center and a fetal care center. They diagnose, they treat, and they cure the babies in the womb. And a patient is a person, no matter how small. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So what, you know, is really disturbing to me is that babies are being aborted mm -hmm. at the gestational age that these twins we were talking about were born. I mean, what do you have to say about that? Well, patients have rights. Um, and that is the real key. And we are clearly treating these patients in the womb. In fact, there's something called a delayed interval delivery that I want you to be able to use as a tool when you're having a discussion regarding life in the womb and using true apologetics. A delayed interval delivery is where you have a set of twins. They might be identical twins, which were made by one egg from the mom, one sperm from the dad that came together in a union and they started to divide. And by four day 13, they divided into two identical copies. Well, when you have twins, one of the biggest complications with a twin pregnancy is going into preterm labor. And we don't want to have babies at 23, 24 weeks if we can avoid it. But now there's something called a delayed interval delivery. And we had one here at my hospital where mom was at a concert. She came because she broke her bag of water while she was at the concert. Before we could do anything, she delivered baby A, and that baby went to our neonatal intensive care unit and was being given all the high tech, the doctors, the nurses, and all the ventilatory support. Baby B, the identical twin was still in the womb. And a standard of care, as long as baby B is doing well, is to keep baby B in the womb because that is the perfect environment for the baby to grow. So while they are there on the inside, we give the mom steroids, give the mom antibiotics. We hope to get hours. And then if we get hours, then we look for days. There have been cases where baby A and baby B have been separated by five, even six weeks. But what boggles the mind is that, yes, yeah, so you can have one identical twin that is born in June and another identical twin that is born in August. But what makes no sense and what we need to use as an apologetics argument is in some states, the baby that is in the NICU, identical twin A, has all the rights and protection that I would have in a cardiac care unit. Meanwhile, it's identical twin conceived from the same sperm and the same egg that happens to be in a different geographic location and is still in the mother's womb doesn't have any of those rights or protection. If that mother were to choose, she could have identical twin A down in the NICU getting great care. But if she were to choose, she could legally abort identical twin B. It makes no sense at all. 
Patients wow. have rights. More than half of the states actually have patients' bills of rights. And clearly, we are treating the preborn as patients by performing surgery on them and saving their lives. The other thing that's a key bioethics rule when it comes to how we treat patients is what are the risks, what are the benefits, and what are the alternatives when it comes to informed consent? If we are doing surgery on a baby in the womb, then mom is receiving surgery too. Mom will have anesthesia, an incision will be made in her skin, a second incision in her womb to get access to the baby, and then the baby has surgery done. Well, what are the risks to the mom? Well, there's risk of bleeding, risk of infection. Mom might ha- might be required to have a C-section for this delivery and the rest of her deliveries. What are the benefits to the mom? Because you don't just do surgery unless there is a benefit to the patient. The only patient that benefits when we are performing fetal surgery across the country, the only benefit is always to the baby on the inside. So by definition of bioethics and informed consent, the baby is our patient and all patients have rights. A patient's a person, no matter how small, and clearly the pre-born in the womb are patients. All right, well, we certainly agree with that. So what do you say um, to Mm -hmm. a parent and what services can you offer them who may have been given a grim diagnosis about a fetal anomaly that you may not be able to help with these medical advances? Sure, you know, because anomalies do occur. I mean, sometimes babies are born, sometimes people develop conditions, sometimes any of us can develop cancer. Once we are given a lethal diagnosis, we don't say, hey, your five-year-old just got diagnosed with this type of cancer. Um, We can treat it or we can euthanize your five-year-old. Just because we diagnose a condition on the inside of the womb doesn't mean, well, the option is just to abort that baby. And we see that in my patients where what are the parents looking for? They want to see their baby. They want to hold their baby, but they need to be told, we're going to be there with you. We're going to support you. We're going to get all the counseling that you need. We're going to do the best that we can to support this baby in the womb and support this baby afterwards. And sometimes our diagnosis might be off and the babies do do well. The key to compassionate medicine is to meet with these moms and say, we're going to be there for you. God forbid medicine say, you know, it's going to be too much of a hassle. It's too much time out of my schedule, too many resources to either fix your baby in the womb or to support you. God forbid we start to just say, let's just abort the baby. And then a couple months later, let's start over with a new pregnancy. We treat the moms as a compassionate patient, and we treat the babies with the most advanced technology that we have. Is it perfect? No. There are some things we just can't cure, but we have a duty to meet the needs of those parents and to you know, dispe- dispel their fears and say, we're going to be there with you. And I have had patients that we have diagnosed conditions. I'm thinking of three right now where we said, we're going to be there with you. We'll be supporting you. On one of these patients, the baby was born and the baby died a few hours later. And then I actually had her come into the office six weeks later. But before that, my wife and I and my youngest daughter actually went to the family and went to the funeral of that baby. And we saw a lot of people grieving. Six weeks later, when I saw her in the office, she came up and she said, thank you so much. She said, 
I practice anesthesia. She is a nurse practitioner and she's an anest a nurse anesthetist. She said, I felt that baby moving on the inside. She goes, I couldn't imagine having somebody else give me anesthesia, having a surgery performed to abort my baby. And I wake up from that procedure and I never got to see my baby or hold my baby. She goes, yes, we didn't get an out a good outcome and I'm sorry for that. But she said, you gave me something that nobody else was willing to give me. You gave me the opportunity to hold my baby, love my baby, kiss my baby, say goodbye to my baby. She goes, I will always cherish those memories that nobody else was willing to put in that effort. So it is the best thing for the patient. It takes a little bit more time, but it is the right thing to do. And God forbid we start to shift medicine to doing the easy thing instead of doing the right thing. Yeah. Amen to that. So we've reported many times on our show, the two drug protocol for chemical abortions. Um, as mentioned, you're one of the doctors who perform reversals to chemical abortions. Can you explain how you treat the mom and baby and how successful is the actual treatment? Sure. Well, first, let's go with definitions because we have to understand what we are talking about. What's the difference between the morning after pill, which is evil in itself, which causes the woman to have a menstrual cycle and lose the pregnancy, but it is indicated for the morning after, the morning after she's had intercourse. She doesn't even have a pregnancy test. She doesn't know, but she takes this pill and it forces her to have a menstrual cycle. How is that different from the abortion pill? And the abortion pill is now at least 54% of all the abortions. In a lot of states, it's even available mail order and without a visit. The abortion pill is different in that it's not indicated for the morning after. The abortion pill is actually indicated for up to 10 weeks into the pregnancy. 10 weeks where we are seeing fingers and toes. We, see, we can measure the baby on ultrasound. We can hear and see the heart moving. This is a baby. Most of the um, ultrasounds that we do for new pregnant patients in our office are done maybe six or seven weeks. The abortion pill is indicated and is successful 98% of the time in aborting a baby up to 10 weeks gestation. Well, when somebody realizes they made a mistake by taking the abortion pill, is there an antidote? Sure, we have antidotes in all kinds of medicine. If somebody overdoses on a narcotic like um, fentanyl, do we have an antidote? Sure, it's called Narcan. We give them Narcan, it reverses the effect. Well, do we have an antidote for the abortion pill? Well, for the first pill, yes, we do. How does the abortion pill work? It works by blocking a very important hormone called progesterone. Big word, progesterone. What does it stand for? It is a progestational steroid hormone. This is the hormone that keeps a pregnancy going. It says, mom, congratulations, we're pregnant. We're not gonna have a menstrual cycle. We're gonna divert more blood flow to this pregnancy. And our new full-time job is supporting this new pregnancy, progesterone. How does the abortion pill work? It blocks that hormone called progesterone. And all of a sudden, all that support is withdrawn. Then the next day, you take a medication which causes contractions and you pass that passed away pregnancy that was there on the inside. Well, a real smart guy named Dr. George Delgado thought years ago, well, if this blocks progesterone, what if we just give the mom progesterone? The same progesterone that we use when we're using in vitro fertilization, the same progesterone that we use to prevent preterm labor, the same progesterone that we use in pregnancy on women who've had recurrent miscarriages. So he used progesterone, which is bioidentical to what the mom is making. And what happened? He was successful in reversing the effect of the abortion pill. We have now trained over 
500 doctors in the protocols of abortion pill reversal. Uh, we have documented over 4,500 successful reversals, healthy moms, healthy babies. I've attempted abortion pill reversal at the request of the patient now 19 times. We've been successful 15 out of those 19 times. Nationwide, we're successful between 60 and 70% of the time. Healthy moms, healthy babies. We all either say things or do things that we have regrets. And we think, why did I say that? That was stupid for me to say that. Well, people have regrets regarding taking narcotics. We have Narcan. And women have regrets regarding taking the abortion pill. But fortunately, we are there to give them an alternative and to save the life of their baby. Not only have I been involved in reversing the abortion pill successfully 15 out of 19 times, but several of those babies I've actually had the privilege of delivering. There's a grandmother who sends me at least a picture once a year of her uh, granddaughter because the mom had taken the abortion pill, realized she had made a mistake. We were successful in reversing it. And just this past fall, Grandma sent me a picture of this beautiful little girl getting ready to start kindergarten over in Mobile, Alabama, little pink and purple dressed in a little pink and purple uh, backpack, taking her first day to school. She is healthy. She is normal. And that is exciting to me. I love delivering babies. I've delivered over 4,000. But when you see a baby that had a 98% chance of dying because of a decision that was made by the mom who then recognized that decision and we were successful in not only reversing and delivering the baby but to see that baby five years later starting kindergarten it's one of the biggest joys that you can have in medicine wow well congratulations and and those numbers are astronomical that's that's great news i had no idea it was that many so thank you well dr lyle i know that um you've got a mom i think waiting for you to uh deliver another baby today so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining me tonight and i hope you'll come back again i could talk to you all oh, day i'd be thrilled there's so much more information on how we treat the pre-born as patients and a patient is a person no matter how small and we are here defending the little ones created in the image of God at the moment of conception. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyle, and a happy new year. You as well. At the top of political news this week, the former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, has pulled within four percentage points of frontrunner Donald Trump in New Hampshire's 2024 Republican presidential primary, a contest which could prove closer than expected for the ex-president, according to a new poll. In an American Research Group poll released on Thursday, which had asked voters whom they preferred in the New Hampshire primary scheduled for January 23rd, Haley earned 29% support to Trump's 33%. That meant the gap between Haley and Trump was within the survey's 4% margin of error after the former president had long held dominating polling leads in the race for the 2024 Republican White House nomination. Wisconsin's top Republican wants to let voters decide whether to shrink the window of time in which women can get abortions, but the state's Democratic governor says he won't allow it. Current state laws ban abortions after the 20th week of pregnancy. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said December 20th that he hopes to put a proposal on some future ballot that would lower the limit to somewhere between the 12th and 15th week. It's probably the only way for us to put this issue to rest, he told the Associated Press. It has the idea of saying we're letting the people decide. However, Democratic Governor Tony Evers opposed the plan in a statement issued Thursday. 
He said, I'll veto any bill that makes, makes reproductive health care any less accessible for Wisconsinites than it is right now. New Yorkers will be voting next November on a proposal to enshrine abortion rights into their state constitution. The official language that will be proposed to voters on New York's November 5, 2024 ballot has yet to be released. For the Constitution to be amended, the amendment has to pass both houses of the state legislature two times successively, which it did in 22 and 23. Then a simple majority of New Yorkers voting for the ballot measure would be sufficient for passage. Republican Assemblywoman Marjorie Burns is leading a lawsuit against the state Senate and Board of Elections, alleging that in 22, the legislature illegally passed the amendment by failing to follow the procedure laid out by the Constitution. Burns is arguing in the suit that because of the amendment's illegal adoption, it cannot be put on the 2024 ballot. Republican presidential candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley will participate in back-to-back -back live CNN presidential town halls next month in Iowa. Both will appear at Grand View University in Des Moines, Iowa on January 4th, just 11 days before voters head to the polls in Iowa, a critical early state in the primary election calendar that can make or break a campaign's momentum. CNN anchor Caitlin Collins will moderate the town hall with DeSantis at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and CNN anchor Aaron Burnett will moderate the town hall with Haley at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Each candidate will field questions from the moderators and from an audience of Iowa voters who say they intend to vote in the Iowa Republican caucuses. National and state polling shows that Donald Trump holds a commanding lead in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. But DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and Haley, the former South Carolina governor, who served almost two years as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations during the Trump administration, are battling to be the top alternative to the former president. And that's political news in a nutshell. At the top of abortion in the news, a cluster of Democrat bills signed into law by Governor Gretchen Whitmer this year did not garner enough GOP support to take effect immediately. But major changes Democrats made on labor, gun, and abortion policies in Michigan will kick in next year. After Michigan voters approved an amendment enshrining abortion rights in the state constitution last year, Democrats in the state legislature followed up by repeating some abortion-related restrictions Michigan had already on the books. Whitmer signed a new Reproductive Health Act, removed regulations for clinics that abortion rights advocates characterize as onerous, a state law requiring the purchase of a special insurance rider for private health plans to cover abortion, and another banning higher education institutions, pregnant and parenting service offices from providing referrals for abortion. While Whitmer had called on lawmakers to repeal Michigan's 24-hour waiting period, for those seeking abortion and a ban on medical Medicaid funding for the procedure, Democrats not, did not have enough votes to do so. There are renewed conversations and legislation surrounding abortion in South Carolina. The state already has a six-week ban, but a bill known as the Equal Protection Bill, sponsored by Berkeley County Republican Representative Jordan Pace, would look to make abortion illegal with limited exceptions. It's called Equal Protection Bill 
since it was just established in law that babies are people just like everyone else, Hayes said. I mean, that is the underlying premise of the bill, that they deserve the same constitutional protections, right of life, as you and I who are outside the womb. The only expectation in this bill is concerned with protecting the life of the mother. As the cases of rape and incest, Hayes gave his perspective. Nowhere in any part of our laws today, or really in any of the history of the English common law, has it been acceptable to punish an innocent party for the crime of someone else, Pace said. So why would we execute a child for the crimes of the father? Pace said he is also pushing for stricter penalties for rapists and those who commit assault. Swift justice is the idea and justice for the person who deserves it, which is the perpetrator, not the innocent child, who's the result of that heinous act. Pace said, I have friends who were born from those horrific situations. They're very happy people to not to be dead. In a powerful Christmas Day message, Pope Francis condemned abortion, drawing parallels between it and the suffering of children in war zones and as refugees. The head of the Catholic Church strongly denounced abortion, and the condemnation of abortion was unequivocal. He likened the act to murder, emphasizing the innocence of the unborn, and described the killing of babies in abortion as slaughter. How many innocents are being slaughtered in our world in their mother's wombs, in odysseys undertaken in desperation and in search of hope, in the lives of all these little ones whose childhood has been devastated by war. They are the little Jesuses of today, the Pope said. And finally, three pro-lifers settled a lawsuit against the National Archive Museum in Washington, D.C. this week after museum security guards allegedly targeted them in January for wearing pro-life t-shirts. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit agreed to settle for a total payment of $10,000 from the museum. As part of the settlement, the museum also promised it would implement measures to ensure that such discrimination does not occur again, according to CNBC. Judge Timothy Kelly wrote on December 19th in a consent order that the plaintiffs should not have been asked to remove or cover articles of clothing expressing their religious and other beliefs and the National Archives and Records Administration regrets that this happened. The incident occurred when the three pro-lifers visited the National Archives Museum on January the 20th, 2023, after participating in the March for Life. After they entered the building, security guards ordered them to remove or cover clothing that bore pro-life messages. According to the complaint, two of the plaintiffs are devout Catholics, while one is a Protestant. The plaintiffs' religious beliefs compel them to speak out against abortion through prayer, education, and support of pro-life causes whenever they have an opportunity to do so, the complaint stated. And that's abortion in the news. As we approach the new year, many of us have mixed emotions as we look back at 2023 and wonder as we look forward to what our pro-life work will look like in 2024. Here is Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, with a special message of hope and encouragement for all of us. Happy New Year. 
Well, hi, friends. Pro-Life leader Frank Pavone here, director of Priests for Life, and I am excited about the dawn of the new year. I hope you are, too. You know, this is a time for great hope and for great resolution. God gives us our lives as a gift in segments of days and months and years, and we give it back to Him with faithful service, with proclamation of His gospel, and in our case, particularly this audience, with a steadfast determination to protect the most precious gift, that of human life itself. In its most vulnerable form, the babies in the womb. Is 2024 going to be a year of great progress for the cause of life? A year of great progress for the nation? I believe it will be. Not only because of God's faithfulness, not only because of your commitment and determination and the strength that we find from prayer and from our union and collaboration with one another, but also for another reason, that there comes a point in the nation, there comes a point in the church, where people, because of all the confusion and the division and the attacks on the sacred things that we believe, come to the conclusion that things have gotten bad enough, things have gone far enough, that they need to respond with more commitment, they need to get more involved in the process of making things better. I think a lot of people, both in the church and in the country, have gotten to that point now, as we transition from 2023 to 2024, where people are more aware that there is a battle between good and evil unfolding right in front of us, that they are needed, each and every one of them, needed to do their part, and that as we all respond to the grace of God, we are going to succeed in our mission. Brothers and sisters, God never gives us an opportunity, He never gives us a mission without giving us all the grace and strength we need to fulfill it. Keep that firmly in mind as we begin this new year. Look at it as a clean slate. Leave all the sins and regrets of the past in the past. We allow our sins to remind us how much we depend on God. We allow them to deepen us in humility but we must never allow them to discourage us or deter us from the path of faithful service to Christ. In that sense, leave the guilt in the past, leave the fears behind, move forward with courage despite fear, and brothers and sisters, let's move together with profound hope. Remember, we have just celebrated and we continue to celebrate the birth of Christ, and St. Paul tells us, if God did not spare his own son, will he not give us everything else besides? Let's hope and work boldly for a year in which life will triumph, freedom will triumph, truth will triumph, justice will triumph. It's a gift of God, and it's also our sacred obligation to do more than we've ever done before to bring these realities to pass. Let them triumph in Christ, and may we enjoy the gift of another new year. We look forward to working together with you. We look forward to many broadcasts with you, many projects, and many victories in the name of the Lord Jesus. God bless you. This show ends our second season of Pro-Life Primetime News. Leslie and I would like to thank you all for continuing to watch and sharing your comments with us. 
We would also like to thank Priests for Life for producing our show and special appreciation to our producers, Rob, Neil, and Johnny. Thank you also to our fill-in anchors, Anthony, Mary, and of course, Janet. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pro-Life Primetime News produced at Priests for Life headquarters here in Titusville, Florida. Teresa and I and our Priests for Life family would like to wish you and your families a blessed and very happy new year. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all your pro-life news updates during the week, please follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Pro-Life News Show. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. And I'm Janet Morena, Executive Director. Remember, life is the only choice. Happy, Happy New Year. New Year. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.